0: Hi and welcome. This is the Women Who Bring to Life What's Next, a podcast series by Capgemini Invent. In this series, we explore how some of the world's most successful women leaders transform their businesses, connect humans and technology, and make a difference in the world. My name is Courtney Pace. I'm the Head of Strategy and Head of Private Equity for Frog Cap Capgemini Invent Company. Today, I'm joined by Stephanie Von Friedeberg, Managing Director at Citi. Stephanie, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks very much, Courtney. Great to be here. You've had a fascinating career at the World Bank and IFC. Tell us a little bit about your journey and how you ended up at City.
1: Interesting question, Courtney. You know, people always used to say to me, how did you climb the career ladder? And I say, I'm not sure my career was a ladder. I think it was more of a jungle gym. (laughs) And, you know, I swung and hung upside down and climbed around a lot. And it really allowed me to end up at City. So I've done multiple jobs in the World Bank Group that touch how do we privatize the former Soviet Union to how do we build mobile networks and technology in emerging markets, run internal technologies, and really came to a point where it was, I thought, time to retire. But after two months of retirement, my husband told me to go get a job. So I joined City with the understanding that the world is in a really precarious place and the money that the private sector actually manages and controls, needs to be brought to bear to solve some of our most difficult development challenges. I really believe that institutions like Citibank are perfectly positioned to help make that happen and really go from the jargon of billions to trillions being invested in in emerging markets where it's needed the
0: most. Fascinating. So as you were making that move, were there particular trigger moments as you were navigating the jungle gym? Yeah. So people laugh,
1: but this is the truth. I applied for one job in 30 years at the World Bank Group, and that was when I applied to join the bank as a young professional. Wow. Every job that I applied for inside the institution, I never got. People said, oh, you're not qualified for that. But every time I got bored and I tend to get bored easily, uh, someone said to me, why don't you try something new? And so the first time when I actually joined as a young professional, I was working in India. And the Soviet Union was breaking open. I have a background in Russian area studies. So they asked me to move to Russia and live in Nizhny Novgorod and help figure out how we privatize the industrial base. And I worked very closely with Boris Nemtsov and the team. It was a phenomenal experience. And I thought this is probably gonna be the highlight of my career and I'm only 27 years old. But I did that job and and then kind of investing in Eastern Europe for about 10 years. And then we had a fascinating CEO who said, oh, Stephanie, I'm just going to move my managers around and I want you to run our telecom and technology business. And, you know, Courtney, at that time in history, there were 300 million cell phones in the world. And our board of directors was asking me, why am I giving luxury items to poor people? I spent the next 12 years building mobile networks around the world and then helping technology ecosystems emerge from that and investing in Some of the young startups like Yandex and Alibaba and, you know, fascinating to see how technology has been able to help these countries leapfrog and connect to the world in a really different way.
0: Wow. So you studied foreign service and you have an MBA and you mentioned your studies in Eastern European studies. So no background in engineering or tech before you stepped into this space no background in engineering and tech. And the funny thing was I had a 100 people on my team.
1: So I pulled the personnel files and there were 98 men and two women, and all of them had engineering degrees. And I sat on the end of my chair and thought, how in the world did I get in this job? Now, my father was an engineer and was actually working for a telecom company. So I used to call and say, hey, dad, what is this? But you know, the thing that I learned is that when you surround yourself with people who know more than you and are better at you at things, you can actually create better teams and you can serve an institution better. So I had a lot of experience in project finance, a lot of experience in structuring. At the end of the day, cash flow is cash flow, but understanding how the technology actually helps you generate that cash flow, all those engineers could help me do. And together, we really changed the world.
0: Wow, amazing. You find your way to the World Bank. You end up as CIO there. And then what prompted the jump to IFC? So I was at IFC for most of my career. And actually,
1: I went the other way. I went to the World Bank to become the CIO. So again, back to this theme of people keep offering you jobs. 12 years into that telecom job, we had a CEO at IFC. And IFC's internal systems were pretty bespoke at the time. And he said, Stephanie, will you just run my internal IT function for two years Clean it up for me. And then you can come back to the front line and have any job you want. And I'm okay. All right. I'll do that. So I was 18 months into that job when Shelly Leibovitz, who was the CIO for the World Bank Group, told Bob Zolik, who was the president of the World Bank at the time, Bob, I want to leave. And Bob said, You can't leave unless you have somebody to replace you. And Shelly said, Well, I have the perfect person. (laughs) So I got a call from Bob Zolik. I didn't know him. You know, it wasn't like my phone rang with calls from him on a regular basis. And he said, come and see me. I want you to do this job. And I asked him for 24 hours to think about it. And I came back to IFC and asked the HR VP, do I have to take this job? And she said, you do. But it was an incredible journey because there are five institutions that make up the World Bank Group. Each of them had their own technology stacks. Each of them had built internal processing systems, on-prem, old technologies, not adequate data center backups. and Just as I started that job, Jim Kim became the president of the World Bank, and he came in and said, Stephanie, we got to fix this. I want one shared service for the World Bank Group, and I want everything in the cloud. So I spent six years in the process of transforming the technology at the World Bank Group, spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley, really figuring out two things. One, how do we actually find the right technology for our frontline staff so we can deliver better everywhere in the world? Just imagine in Afghanistan as an example, because we weren't in the cloud, we had servers that we had to pull every time we emptied an office and moved somewhere else. So moving to the cloud really changed the way that we were able to function, our security footprint. But when I was in Silicon Valley, I'd also say to all the VC guys, show me two companies that are changing the face of the world in relation to development. So I kept on top of how technology was changing development as well. And I was ready to leave and move to Silicon Valley, to be honest with you. And then I had the CEO of IFC said, no, Stephanie, come back. I want a new strategy. I want us to rethink the way we engage in private sector development. So I came back to IFC and helped create what we called the IFC 3.0 strategy and then took over as the COO to implement it.
0: Wow. So at first blush, it may seem that your role at Citi is quite different from the prior two roles. Tell us a little bit about your role today.
1: My role at City is different in a way, and yet it's squarely in the same field. So all of the developed world and the developing world, governments have very little fiscal space left, and there's not enough public sector money to solve the SDGs, to correct for the scars of COVID, to deal with climate and to deal with the implications of the war in Ukraine. The only way that will happen is for the public sector and the private sector to collaborate and cooperate better. My role at City is to say, how can city build stronger relationships with the development finance institutions, learn how to use their risk defeasance tools, and put the city balance sheet to work in emerging markets in a way that we're being asked to do? I think the flip side of that is city is this incredible institution. It has breadth and depth that is far greater than any of the MDBs have within their own walls. so how do we bring the strengths of City and its capabilities to bear in emerging markets through these partnerships with the development finance institutions?
0: Amazing. Could you give us a couple of examples? I love the examples of moving the servers in Afghanistan to the cloud because it's such a, a tangible example of how technology can help in developing markets. And if you could just maybe share a couple of examples of what you're thinking about at City, I think that would be great.
1: So there's a lot that we can do at City, but one of the things that we need to do is use the financial engineering that exists in the world to create more debt capital markets opportunities and expand local capital markets. And we're going to be able to do that both through bond issuances, but also through the use of technology. City Social Finance actually invests in some very interesting digitally backed financial institutions that I think are going to change the way People think about finance in emerging markets, because remember, in the United States, there is a bank on every corner, right? In an emerging market, there's not. The bank is your phone and your wallet that sits on your phone. So our ability to think through how can we use those data sets to create algorithms, um, all of what Alibaba and Ant Finance have done in China and elsewhere, and begin to lend off of those platforms, huge opportunities there from a technology perspective.
0: Hmm. What are some of the lessons that you learned from development that you brought over into the private sector? Ooh, that's a tough question.
1: From my perspective, the most important thing about private sector development finance is who do you do business with? And my greatest learning in IFC is that that is the most important question to ask. Projects have issues and sometimes things go wrong. But if you're doing business with the right people, You can solve for those problems. It may take you a little longer to get your money back and you may have to restructure, but things are fixable. If you do business with the wrong people, you're never gonna get your money back. And I think it is important that that set of skills comes to the private sector. I think the second piece that the development finance institutions do extremely well is work around environment, social, and governance. So ESG. And ESG is a super hot topic in the world today. Everybody wants ESG stamped, bonds and financing, the development finance institutions actually have the adequate frames to bring into the private sector. So what we call the IFC performance standards have become the equator principles, and there's 193 banks in the world that have adopted them. So how do we take those equator principles and grow and expand them in a way that will help us solve for the sustainability issue and for climate? And I think those are two of the things that we can bring to city.
0: When you think about your role today, how is it broken down? How do you spend your time on the road? I'm just kidding.
1: (laughs) My mom asked me the other day, do you ever know where you are? And I said, well, sometimes I know what city I'm in. Only sometimes. Only sometimes. Exactly. You know, I do three things. One is working internally at Citi. Think about how do we do project finance as a corporate bank? Because after the financial crisis, Most of the U.S. banks did less and less project finance. We've lost a bit of our rigor there and we need to rebuild it. So that's one leg of the stool. The second leg of the stool is really spending more time with the development finance institutions and being that bridge between the private sector and the public sector, because oftentimes we talk across each other. We have different languages for the same concepts and different ways of looking at things. So I do a lot of translating. And that means I'm on the road. I'm in Asia talking to the Asian development banks. I'm in Europe talking to the European development banks. I'm in Africa talking to the African development banks. So kind of all over the world, which has been part of my DNA since I joined the World Bank Group 30 years ago. And I love to travel, so I don't mind that. The third leg of my stool really takes me back to my foundations and my education, which is working very closely on Ukraine. I have been intimately involved in Ukraine for many years. I sat on the Ukrainian Investment Council under both Poroshenko and Zelensky. And Citi has a very large franchise in Ukraine, very important to us that we are at the table as the rebuild happens. And again, this is where the development finance institutions and the commercial banks are gonna have to merge together because the $750 billion that's gonna be required to build Ukraine can't all come from public money.
0: hmm Wow, fascinating. In your work, you spend a lot of time working in technology. And of course, your work impacts millions and millions of people. How do you see the interaction or the influence or the confluence of humans and technology in your work?
1: Courtney, I'm a big believer and I'm a glass half full person in relation to technology and development, because I think technology may be able to help us solve some of the most difficult development challenges in the world. And I would focus on things like health and education. We can just start there. You know, as a result of the COVID crisis, 500 million children in the world, mainly in emerging markets, dropped out of school and may never go back. We can use technology to pull them in to learn through educational platforms, things that are available on their phone. I think we can look at the same thing in relation to health. What are we seeing in health? How can we actually create virtual surgeries and virtual care from doctors and from nurses. Biotech, I think, is critical. If you think about how quickly we were able to create a vaccine for COVID and can we expand the use of those technologies and find vaccines for the 19 diseases that kill more people in emerging markets every year than anywhere else in the world, I think yes. And then I look at just overall connectivity and what Mobile and broadband have brought to fintech and the ability to use technology and create a more inclusive society is exactly what we should be doing. The first time that I met Jack Ma, he said something very interesting. He said that his grandfather worked seven days a week, 10 hours a day in the field. His dad worked five days a week, eight hours a day in a factory. And his intention is that with the right kind of technology, he can work three or four days a week and spend the rest of his time expanding his brain in relation to art and culture and history. And I love that idea.
0: (laughs) It sounds pretty good to me, too. So when you look back at Stephanie from the IFC and you look ahead to Stephanie today, how has your journey affected your leadership style? How has that shifted over the years?
1: I've learned a lot about how to create teams that I think has forged My view on leadership, I think my leadership style actually hasn't changed that much. I actually look back to myself as a kid and think I was just like that, too. (laughs) And the ancient Greeks believed that there were four elements that everything was made up of, earth, water, air and fire. And people extracted that into the spiritual meaning of things. And eventually leadership coaches adopted it as well. I have always seen myself as a fire leader. I love to ignite things. I love to get things started. I'm very comfortable in messes. And with that, I have always been very active in change processes and moving organizations down the field. So action oriented, getting results and comfortable making different difficult choices. But if you want to do that, you would have to be able to choose the right kind of people around you who have different sets of skills, who challenge you who help you build better teams. That is super important. The other learning that I take away is you really need to get to know the people you work with because they bring their whole self to the office. So, you know, if someone's son has broken their arm or somebody's daughter's won an award, that matters and that comes into the office with you. So that's important. And then always saying thank you publicly and privately. To me, thank you matters
0: a lot. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. You mentioned that you have worked in a lot of male dominant spaces, particularly early on in the engineering days. Has that affected your style or approach at all?
1: So again, like I said, I don't think my leadership style has changed since I was a kid. When I was six years old, I looked at my dad and said, Dad, I want to play baseball. And he said, girls don't play baseball. And I said, well, yes, they do. They do now. So he helped me get on a little league team and I played baseball with boys until I was 16. I think that set my frame. I just never differentiated people's sexual orientation or their gender. I really did learn how to work on teams with boys and ultimately men. So I have always worked in very male dominated places, even in the development field. It's taken us years to get to a point where even 50% of the managers and directors and vice presidents in institutions like the World Bank are female. If you look below that, It's still only about 38, 39% women. So, you know, I'm very comfortable in that situation.
0: Mm -hmm. I grew up in a house with three brothers, so I understand the desire to play baseball and do all things. How have you thought about mentoring and sponsoring others as you've been navigating your jungle gym? I have had in my life probably two or three mentors who are still
1: personally very important to me and to whom I still reach out. And one of them, actually, when I got my first very senior job, said to me, Stephanie, the first thing you need to do is surround yourself with people who tell you the truth, because the higher you go in the organization, the more people are going to tell you you're wonderful and perfect and you never make mistakes. And you never want to believe that because everybody Mm -hmm. makes mistakes. And what it really helped me realize is that there's people underneath me who I need to pull up. I typically had a group of women who I mentor and I usually have five to six of them and we do different things together. And there are different levels in the institution. So some of them are very junior. Um, you know, they're right out of undergrad. Some of them are right out of graduate school. And then some of them are directors striving to be above that. But to me, it's super important that we help them along the path. I've been through motherhood. I've raised three children and balanced a career. And women need help with that. So I'm more than happy to continue to mentor young women and maturing women.
0: How did you find your mentors when you were starting out?
1: You know, it's chemistry. It has to be a give and a take and it has to be someone who wants to help you grow and you have to be willing to grow. So anybody who's listening to this, I would encourage you to think about who do you respect? Who could you reach out to and ask for some mentorship and then build those relationships and figure out who can really help you? That's how you
0: find your mentors. Amazing. The power of building our networks today is more important than ever. And your story is such a beautiful story of how that has been such a strong theme in your life over the years.
1: I go back to this notion, Courtney, that I never applied for a job. And it's because I have maintained and will continue to maintain a really broad network. And you asked me once, did I have turning points in my career? I have had turning points. And one of them was when I took over the telecom team, the person who was managing the broader group hadn't had any say in me getting the job. He started out saying, well, she has a better outside chance and a better inside game. So she was given the job, but we'll learn to deal with her. Right. And it was like, wow, okay, this is going to be a hard uphill battle. So I got myself a coach and my coach said to me, you know, Stephanie, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to have you write your resume. And I said, well, I don't want to leave. And she said, you need to understand that you have value outside of the institution. Because the more you realize that you can walk away from something into something else will give you the confidence you need to be successful in the job that you're in. And to this day, Courtney, my resume is polished and ready to go. (laughs) It really taught me that you can leave when you need to leave. As long as you've got the network and you're communicating with people, there's a lot to do in the
0: world. It seems counterintuitive, but it makes perfect sense that knowing your value actually enables you to be even more successful right where you are. Yeah. Over the years, how do you think about maintaining those relationships in those networks? Some of them wax and wane. Some people I've lost touch with, but this
1: is where I rely considerably on technology. So I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn, a lot of time on WhatsApp, just keeping in touch with people, sharing things, adding things, augmenting things. And then Whenever I travel, I try to get to know and see people who I don't usually get to see. If I'm in Asia, I might drop in on a friend from graduate school or somebody that I worked with. If I'm in London, I might drop in and see a friend from EBRD who I did a transaction with 20 years ago. I think those kinds of connections really help keep networks alive. Plus, you learn. Every time I meet someone I haven't seen for a while, they're doing something interesting or they're looking at something new. Then I get a different angle on life.
0: Stephanie, when we look back years from now, what do you hope your legacy will be?
1: I hope that my legacy is that I will leave a world better than the one that I entered for my children and my grandchildren. I always thought that that would be the case. And I truly don't mean that in a trite way. When I started in development, 30 percent of the world lived on less than $1.90 a day, so lived in abject poverty. Today, about 9% of the world lives in abject poverty. So, Courtney, we've made huge strides in improving the world and the lives of people on the planet. I worry, though, that we've created a climate crisis. We have a war raging in Europe that is creating geopolitical tension. There's geopolitical tension between the Western world and China. And it's tearing apart the fabric that actually built the global economy that has created as much wealth as it has created. And I certainly hope that in the next 10 years, whatever I do, however big or however small, will be able to continue to push out that poverty and make the world a better
0: place. Do you have any asks or last thoughts or calls to action for those of us who are listening today? Well, I would say, first of all, always be curious,
1: always ask questions and be willing to take risks. When I look in the rearview mirror and I look at the jobs that I've taken, who would have thought that someone who didn't have an engineering degree could run the technology sacks at the World Bank Group? Yet the changes that we made were revolutionary for the business. And it was because I surrounded myself with the right people and we had different skill sets to actually make the change happen. So take risks, pull into the fast lane when you're given the opportunity and be willing to fail and pick yourself up. You will fall off the jungle gym once in a while but a few bruises
0: don't hurt and you can jump back on and climb back up. I love that. Stephanie, our fire leader, thank you so much for the powerful reminder around the health of our businesses and how they're intrinsically linked to the health of our planet and the people that we serve. And it's been wonderful speaking with you today. Thank you so much again for joining us. Absolutely. It was great.